You found the Love Flight Podcast. I'm Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach, and I've been helping Nervous Flyers since 1997. So in this podcast, you are going to find aviation experts, psychologists, coaches, enthusiasts, and people normal, just like you, who have overcome their fears. Welcome. So welcome, Billy, to the Love Fly podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks so much, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, well, right back at you. No, very grateful. And uh, I think this will be a really interesting one for people. And initially, when you hear the topic we're going to talk about, please don't turn off because I promise you it's going to be fine. You know, it's all good. So, Billy, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and uh, how we're connected now. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Well, um, you know, again, it's a it's a privilege to be talking with you today about a topic that we are very passionate about and very excited about, um, and one that we hope that your listeners will, you know, might be interested in, and um, hopefully maybe some reassurance about, mm. you know, our, our some of our research, our clinical goals uh, and gaps, and then how we might think about these topics in the future. But so I'm a, I'm a neurologist, um, and I care for pilot and non-pilot patients. And then I'm an, uh, an assistant, or affiliated assistant professor of aviation at the University of North Dakota, where we um, study the health behavior of pilots and, and questions about aeromedical screening. So how do we make sure that the people that we trust to function in the skies are, are, are healthy? Mm. Well, interesting. So how did you get into that particular specialism? <laughs> well, it's, it's very niche, but you know, I come from a family, so several people in my family were in aviation and a lifelong, like I'm sure many of your, well, maybe some of your listeners and many others in aviation, a lifelong love of aviation. Mm. And um, when I was actually in school, I started out in training to become an airline pilot. So a whole bunch of my dear friends are, are flying for the airlines. Um, but one thing that was so obvious to me, I guess, when I was in school was that, you know, hearing of friends feeling that they are trying to decide whether or not to sometimes get medical care for for issues that they might be facing, physical or psychological. Mm. Um, because, you know, there's this fear that they might lose their ability to work and fly. Um, and so there's this inadvertent paradigm. And in, in, in learning that, that's what kind of started this lifelong research endeavor to try to quantify that, study that, and think about how we address it. Yeah. So are you saying that that pilots might be reluctant to come forward. I mean, do you just do pilots or do you do cabin crew as well? I, mean, I didn't actually ask that. Just pilots. Well, you know, the, the work up to this point has been very focused on pilots, but what is uh, becoming clear is that the incredible people that function in the most complicated system that humans have created, the aerospace system, all play a key role in maintaining the exceptional safety record of aviation. I mean, it's if you take a step back and really think about this incredible feat that happens every day, all day around the world and how incredibly mm. it is, um, it's amazing that these professionals come together and are able to achieve that so consistently. So while we've been very focused on pilots, we are trying to expand that, you know, 
other other personnel in the system face a lot of these same issues. And, and so what is that issue? Um, you know, in so pilots are required to meet certain medical standards. Um, if they disclose new health information or they seek care, they run the risk of usually temporary loss of their ability to work and fly. But that time off of flying status can be of variable durations. It can have negative occupational and financial repercussions for the pilot. And so inadvertently, it can leave them weighing the risks against the benefits of, of doing that. Yeah. So this is really interesting, actually. So it doesn't surprise me because you'd think anybody doing any job would weigh up those same things, wouldn't they? Think like, if I, can I just battle on? Can I still do my role without it being affected? You know, I've got this cold, I've got, I'm not feeling so great, but we've got a situation where you've got other people's lives at stake. I mean, I know they're not on their own. There's always a, at least another pilot there as well, but it, it causes me to think, how how do they navigate through that? Because that's, a, that's an interest. So is it that specific moment that you're researching and trying to make it okay for them to say, yeah, actually, I'm not good. Well, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of discourse around this topic, in particular related to mental health. Mm. So most of my time is I spend taking care of patients. And, you know, in the clinic, we, we, I, we often talk about mental health topics and things like that. And, you know, it, mental health is a dynamic spectrum <laughs> that is constantly changing. And it can be variable from one day to the next. And when something transitions from maybe a, a stressor, one of life's usual stressors that maybe we need to do some rest, maybe we need to lean into our support system or do things to take care of ourselves, not necessarily a medical issue. That's just part of normal life. And then on the other end, there is the circumstances when there's persistent symptoms that maybe kind of get towards that medical realm when we need more professional services to help people to feel better. You know, when you think about that in the flying community, it's, it's you know, difficult. One, pilots just find themselves in this fascinating lifestyle where they are on the road, away from social networks. Um, they are changing in their sleep patterns. They're in different cities. And in many ways, it's also very isolating. Yes. Like um, many days on the road, you know, you're constantly with new crew. So these are just stress. These are just risk factors for mental mm -hmm. health in general. And then you add on top of it this the the responsibility of functioning in the aerospace system and this sticky medical certificate part. It just makes for a very complicated uh, clinical and, and safety question: Is how do we how do we help meet this population, or how do we help them achieve ensure that they get the the care that they need to be healthy while also maintaining safety in the system? Yeah. So. Should we be worried about the system and the way it currently works if you're researching it? Well, you know, that, and that's that's a key question is, you know, in our, our recent study of over 5,000 pilots across North America, mm -hmm. we found that over 50% reported a history of healthcare avoidance, and that is multiple types of behavior, not sharing everything during screening, so during their periodic health assessment, um, you know, experiencing a symptom that they felt probably should have been checked out, but they chose not to, um, among other other factors. Um, in, in over 50% reported this due to fear for losing their ability to work and fly. So that's a big number, 50%. Yes. We actually found the same 
rate in Canadian pilots is US. But here's the here's the key point. All these pilots are flying in the system and aviation is exceptionally safe. You know, we are able to achieve this every day where millions of people are transported without any major issue. Mm -hmm. So we feel that the data around healthcare avoidance is less of a story about a safety issue and more of a story about a health barrier that this very unique patient population, one that we need to trust faces. Yeah. So the, the, that's, thank you. So the, the healthcare avoidance side, how does that then stack up to people who do other types of job, you know, that, I don't know, surgeons or train drivers? I'm just wondering, you know, is this a particularly high number, 50%? Yeah. You know, it's, it's um, to my knowledge, there's limited research in other populations as relates to health avoidance, specifically as it relates to a certificate. So the key... What makes one what makes this population unique is this occupational part where they have to maintain the certificate. So I'm a physician, and my medical license doesn't require me to disclose if I see a therapist. You know, I um I try to do good sleep, I try to eat well, I try to exercise. That's good for me. And every once in a while, I see a therapist because I'm a human being, and I think it's mm -hmm. good for my my mental health to do that. Um, you know, there you know some people might report uh, factors that would dissuade them from from leaning into mental health resources, um, but they tend to be on the size of, you know, stigma or or among others. But in pilots uniquely face a challenge as it relates to their ability to work and fly. And, yeah. you know, the question that is often posed is if you are a multiple hundreds of thousands dollar a year airline pilot in the United States, how bad does your mild anxiety need to be to seek help and potentially risk walking away from flying for months to years? That's a great question, isn't it? I mean, is that question answered? Because that's sort of a left hanging. <laughs> I've put myself in the, the seat, the position now. Somebody who's nervous, like, going, "Oh crikey!" Uh, I was feeling quite confident about pilots and the fact that you know they get this medical every six months and or set to every twelve months, and they're in the simulator every six months. And they only keep their job for really it's only six months at a time. They have to keep proving themselves, and now. Um, Dr. Hoffman's put some a seed of doubt in my mind. So, what can we, what, what can we, what are your findings so far that perhaps might help people to sleep at night? <laughs> oh, of course. Well, and again, we feel the story is, is less of a story about a safety issue and more about a health barrier, and it raises broader questions about mental health in the workplace. You know, what does mental wellness mean in the aerospace system of the future? Does the lack of of seeking of care and the lack of talk therapy does that is that does that mean safety or how do we in the future rethink that and say pilots going to therapy uh building uh their tools in their toolbox to cope with the stress that just exists in their in their yeah. life because of their job that instead means safety and what's so exciting is that there is a robust conversation around this topic and and my opinion is that things are moving forward in, in an exciting and positive way. And that is made evident by several big things that are changing. So it, it, what we can, you know, the, the one that comes to mind is the development of peer support in the airlines. Um, has that been discussed before? I could talk a little bit about peer support. No, go for it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we ha did have a, you might have come across him, uh, Rob Ball. He, oh, yes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Oh, he, okay, he, great. He, he talked on us uh, a, a while back, so not, not everybody listens to everything in order. 
So uh, yeah, do feel free to expand on it. It's, uh, it's always good to have extra extra corroboration. Of course. Well, you know, anecdotally in my clinical experience and what's becoming clear in the data is that because of the unique stressors that pilots face, you know, uh, one barrier that pilots face is uh, finding people that they can talk to or connect with that understand what their life is like. So yes, that might be aviation savvy mental health providers, mm-hmm. but also even easier is their peers. And peer support is a relatively new, you know, on the order of years, um, developing and growing uh, movement in aviation where uh, volunteer, uh, not, you know, um, uh, basically volunteer trained pilot peers serve as, you know, um, people that pilots who identify as maybe needing some help can connect with. And, you know, the mission of this is less about, you know, clinical mental health symptoms and more about pilots facing one of life's usual stressors. This might be a divorce. This might be a tough life on the road, difficulty with a marriage or a child. Mm. And, um, you know, anecdotally, uh, some some are reporting that this is not published data, but some around 80 or 90 percent of the time that pilots identifying as needing help, they can be resolved in a peer support program. Um, highly successful program. So uh, this is one example of many that sh- that talks about the evolving creativity about how do we address this in a new way. Yeah. So the the idea that I mean I love the idea of the peer support because you know more and more people in all sorts of professions now that you know are fessing up. You know, I don't feel great today. It's, it's I think the pandemic in some ways has made it more acceptable. I don't know what your view is that people can say. I'm not having a great day, whereas I think it would have, people would have battled on, you know, and uh, just put up with stuff. And we have, we see more and more of the um, mental health first aid type programs, you know, coming to the UK. So this, the peer support thing, is that, would you say that's across all airlines or just some? How, how big is this now? So that's a key question. And from a research perspective and a clinical perspective, there is one key you know, unanswered gap. And that is, what are the minimum resources an airline pilot should have access to as relates to mental health? Mm. In the United States, depending on the type of flying a pilot does, they may have access to different disability insurance, peer support services, uh, professional like occupational health guidance to help get a certificate once lost, um, than a pilot in a different circumstance. So it's it's heterogeneous, and in some ways, some can make the argument kind of inequitable. If you fly for a well-resourced big airline, you might have those resources. If you're in training and you're at a university, or if you're at a small airline, you may not have access to those. So um, it is my opinion that we need to put some hard thought to that, and who's going to pay for that? Who's going to enforce mm-hmm. that? Peer support in Europe uh, through EASA is, is the guidance is that all airline pilots within EASA should have access to peer support. Um, and my understanding is that that's that's a work in progress. In the States, these are optional programs. Um, you know, how, how might we, how might we use, how might we scale this tool in a way to to address this gap? Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're, you've spotted something here that's re- in a really interesting area. And there has been a little bit of media clickbait around this, hasn't it? And I think that's, the context is always worth restating that we're talking about an incredibly safe 
business, commercial aviation, you know, Western world, commercial aviation, ridiculously safe. So even despite these challenges that you're identifying, it's still really safe. And things generally don't go wrong. Exactly. Well, and, and what we're not identifying is a new problem. Mm. This is a very old, historic, well-ingrained problem. And there's a couple of factors to this. One, the language around mental health is changing. The term anxiety or depression in 2023 means something different, it appears, than it did in 1980. That um, anecdotally, and we are trying to capture in data, that um, willingness and openness to discuss mental health topics is, is accelerating in aviation. Um, as aviation becomes more diverse, which is absolutely, you know, is an exciting time for that reason. Yeah. Um, you know, the language around mental health and mental wellness is likely to change. And we need to think about how we're going to deal with that from a certification perspective. Um, also recognizing historic trends. Um, I, somebody else had used the term, uh, diagnosis de jour, uh, in the night, like early two thousands and the 1990s was, were conditions like ADHD. Um, that put some pilots on, or I mean, some some students on medications that were stimulus to address that. Well, now that's in their medical record, and there's sometimes challenges about addressing that from a certification perspective, even though they may not actually have that condition. Mm. Um, so again, that just goes back to the language is changing, and um, and you know, I have the fortune of of being able to work and learn from student pilots and, and rising pilots into the industry, and. Uh, I, I get a lot of energy and inspiration from them because they are just not willing to just tolerate that we're gonna that pilots are gonna suffer in silence. <laughs> they just have very little patience for that. Well, yes. culturally, that might have been the case in years in the past. So yes. at an exciting time, there's a lot of momentum, and um, and and I think that the the change ahead is only for the better. It's only gonna make us safer by thinking about this in a new way. Yeah, I think so. And and anybody's listening to this thinking, oh, crikey, I hadn't thought about all of this. And this is why it's important that you listen and think about it in this considered way. I think, well, there's intelligent people looking at it. It's not something we just sort of trying to brush under the carpet. It's definitely being thought about. And it's and there's been lots of things in place well, since probably the human factors movement in the 1980s onwards. It's just seen more and more of this like, what is the human element as the machine gets so incredibly clever and, and is backing itself up so many times? The human is the flaw, really. Exactly. I mean, it, well, and obviously not us, but you know, other exactly, people. definitely not us. No, physicians, we don't have any of these, any of these no. difficult, only no. pilots. That is so not true. I, it's the exact opposite. We are just regular human beings that are in the regular human being circumstances. And sometimes we need help, and that's just got to be okay. And building a system that allows for that is only going to make us safer. Um, and the and the system is already very is exceptionally safe. Yes. Um, it, you know, and an important point is that the the people that function in the system, the you know, I would say nearly everybody wants the same thing, and that is an exceptionally efficient, safe aerospace system that allows for the care and health personnel. Um, yes. And it, how do we all march in that same direction? And the conversation is around that. So I hope that your listeners will actually find reassurance that there is all this discussion around this topic, because this is not a new issue, but we're bringing it forward because um, 
you know, as as the as aerospace continues to mature, I guess so to speak, in our safety culture and in mm-hmm. the safety management system, we are we are identifying new places to address, and that's exactly what this is. Yeah, and it is that that idea of like just like nudging things along, learn from things where it's you know perhaps there's been mistakes years gone by. What can we do to make sure that doesn't happen? That's the whole thing about commercial aviation. One of the things I find particularly reassuring. As I know it's not 100% safe because nothing is, but knowing that everything, anything that ever happens is learned from, and that information is shared, and, and I think that's fascinating and very reassuring for people. And most of the pilots I've spoken to, and I've spoken to hundreds, but I haven't had come across one yet who said they they wouldn't, they would go sick if they needed to, if they didn't feel things were right, or if they're some of them are flying with them and they said, look, you don't seem right. They'd stand themselves down. I don't, I haven't heard that. But I guess it's possible if somebody's in a, in a slightly different environment where they might not feel it's safe to do that or they think they just have to battle on. There could be that sort of false macho-ness about, I just don't, you know, just don't want to talk about it, you know. And I think that those are sort of, they're, those are just human things. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I hope your listeners might hear this conversation and feel a sense of resolve to to get into this conversation and, you know, it, as people who are demanding safe air travel and mm-hmm. demanding efficient air travel, that, that, that they advocate that this is important, that we need to be thinking about how do we care for our personnel um, and how do we build a system that permits them to get the care they need to for them to do the job that we're asking them to do. And that's point one. Point two is, you know, culture starts not on the flight deck of a 757 or it's 777 flying over the North Atlantic. Culture starts when a student, when a 19-year-old is in a training airplane with a flight instructor who is probably 23 years old or 25 years old, right? And um, and that is that giving these, these people, these trainees, the correct information that it is okay to need to, step away from flying at times. It's okay to need to seek help. If you need help, do it quickly. It not only allows for hopefully better health outcomes and more efficiently, but also eases certification challenges that 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 brings up. Yeah. And we need to absolutely uh, do away with the, you know, fly to lie, quote unquote, culture that people say, uh, or lie to fly. And that there's, you know, misinformation that you can't, for example, see a therapist and fly, that you can't be on an SSRI and fly, because that is just simply not true in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. As are other countries in EASA, the rules are different. So a caveat is that I'm speaking from a very US-centric perspective. Mm. Yeah, because my understanding was that uh, there's sort of safe to fly is a, is a, is a huge topic and if somebody was going to see if there was, I don't know much about this, but I know that there is a lot of support programs in place around the mental health side. And I know that when the the thing, the question that people often ask me about because of, the, you know, the incident, you know what I'm going to say, the incidents like the German Wings one, they've kind of they say, well, that, that wasn't even on my register that someone could do that, you know, and you know, how can I, how can you guarantee that that won't happen again? You know, I think that's that's a big question. I asked Rob for the same thing, and I just wondered what what your view on that because that probably stimulated quite a lot of thought that 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 incident. Absolutely, it is my opinion that all stakeholders want the same thing, and that is to never have something like that ever ever happen again. Mm. 
Um, and we need to be really open to have all things on the table uh, to to mitigate that. And in many ways, at least in the U.S., the certification program that we have, and that is that pilots periodically checking in with a designated doctor where they're disclosing health information. This system, which is over 100 years old, this 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 came out of the 1920s, this, this system that we have, and our levels of standards came out of like World War I, um, and then was re, kind of revamped in the 1920s and then the 1980s, um, that this is the system that we've had for a long time. This is the system that we had amidst these awful tragedies, um, that thinking about these topics in a new way, my hope is that we're not thinking about adding risk to the system, that we are instead thinking about how do we address latent risk in a new way. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the conversation is going in that direction. Yeah. I, see, I certainly thought, sorry, encouraging. I hope people listening do as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> some of the stuff you're talking about at grassroots level, you know, like the, the new, the student pilot, and, you know, to what extent do you think those messages are getting to them? You know, I, I think it, I'm just humbled by... You know, just just for a historical perspective from a very me-centric perspective, you know, the first study that we did was like six or seven years ago, and it was basically trying to quantify healthcare-seeking anxiety in pilots. And we did the study, and we had the data, and we wrote the paper, and the main journal in aerospace medicine declined it, saying that there's nothing here that we don't already know, that we found that like 80% of pilots reported a history of healthcare-seeking anxiety. And... Even in the medical journals, they just did away with it, you know, and, and kind of wrote it off because this is a problem we just know about. Well, fast forward to today, you know, the in the United States, not only is there a, a embrace of the data, but there is a, there is a, a pouring of support and asking to help use these types of data sets to guide progress forward. You know, the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board in the United States is calling for a summit to specifically discuss the barriers that pilots face in seeking mental health. The United States Federal Aviation Administration is establishing an aviation rulemaking committee, which is going to be a working group to think how we address mental health mm-hmm. aviation in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible the progress and the momentum that's been generated just in the last couple of years. It's really an exciting time. Yeah. I think this is really interesting, actually. There's so many things I want to ask you. Um, thinking about the nervous file, the thing that I'd say, just to reassure people, is that there's pilots have got skin in the game it's not like you it's not remote you're in it so then whenever i talk to pilots we get this sort of question on our courses they always say well you know why would i do something that's going to jeopardize my own life you know if i felt if i didn't feel fit to fly i wouldn't fly it's as simple as that i don't care about anything else and and so i think the there is probably a lower level of like i'm just not feeling great i'm a bit you know, I've got some anxiety. I've got life stuff happening, and at what point does that become a, a thing that could get in the way or interfere with your work performance? And I think that I w- I don't know the answer to that. I guess that's what you're looking into, isn't it? Certainly, if you have allergies and dust makes your allergies worse, and if you have dust all over your floor, keeping a rug on top of the dust doesn't remove the dust. You just mm-hmm. don't see. By pulling the rug back and then cleaning that dust, your allergies are going to get better. It's going to be a little bumpy as you pull the rug back, and there's some work and some elbow grease that needs to be put into doing that. Some dust is going to blow around in the meantime. But in the future, that ultimately results in the outcome that you want. And as we think about, you know, so 
that is a uh, an allegory, I guess, to what we're seeing today is that this is the dust exists. It's been existing for a long time. The system is very safe. All we're doing here is pulling back the rug to try to figure out how do we clean up some of the dust. A lot, a lot. Is that an allegory? I think that's what an allegory is. I, know, I don't know. I always get confused. But Hold on. Let me, I'll, I'll take care of <laughs> I want to Google it to make sure I'm not full of it. Okay. Okay. We'll just pause while you Google it. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, a story or poem or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hinting meaning, typical in a moral political one. Well, mm-hmm. maybe. It's an analogy, maybe. Maybe that's better. Yeah, it could, you know. I mean, I'll give you that. It's definitely... <laughs> I thought an allegory is a bit longer, isn't it? You know, it, it, uh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear me go on any longer, but no, but now we, you know, but Google's corrected us, so we, we it's an analogy. We think <laughs> it's an analogy. Well, that's a good way to think about it, isn't it? So the stuff, this stuff's been going on. There are there are systems in place. Pilots do self-report. There may be some avoidance in terms of like I'm a bit concerned about what the implications might be. Um, and that's the sort of stuff that you're trying to reassure people and investigate, it sounds like to me. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is this is addressing latent risk in a new way. Um, and, and, you know, actually the population that might be interested in this, in this podcast are the same people that are well positioned to, you know, add momentum to the conversation saying, you know, we are the people that depend on this system. And, mm. and the pilots should be getting in the air traffic controllers and the other safety-sensitive personnel should be able to get the care that they need um, easily and with, without barriers to achieve what we all want, and that's a safe aerospace system. Yeah. So join the conversation. Yeah, I think it's a very it's one of those sexy topics in the media of commercial aviation. Is I've had a few people ask me questions about pilots, about air traffic control. It's the same sort of thing. You know, if the media grabs hold of something, then it just says it's this huge thing. Uh, but I think what I'm getting from your work is the fact that it's not a huge thing. It's a thing that's been known about and there's things in place and we're just trying to improve and improve and improve. And it's always those sort of marginal gains that makes commercial aviation such a safe place. So here's the, here's the killer question then. Knowing what you know, are there, would you still fly with no worries, qualms whatsoever? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in fact, hearing the brave stories of pilots raising their hand, despite all the barriers that we know that exist, and raise their hand and say, you know what? I need to get the help that I, I need to get some help. And that's okay because I'm a regular human being. Mm-hmm. They get the help they need and they go back to flying. Um, in fact, someone will make the argument, and it would be my opinion, that a pilot who raises their hand, identifies as needing help, is on a, is on a medication like an SSRI or participating in talk therapy and is feeling better and then goes back into flying is a safer pilot than the pilot who is suffering in silence. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that this movement should provide, at least for me, it provides reassurance that um, that we are in great hands in the aerospace system. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Uh, so as, as always with my guests, I, I, um, this has been really interesting. There's probably 8 million questions I could have asked, but I think the main thing is just to sort of Let's do a bit of a kind of a close and just say, you know, like in a nutshell, then what do nervous flyers listen to this need to bear in mind with your research and the current commercial aviation, despite what the media might be saying? Aviation is exceptionally safe. A longstanding challenge that pilots have found themselves in 
is weighing the risks of seeking care against what it might mean to their ability to work and fly. And this effort is pointing out an old problem and encouraging us to think about this in a new way to address risks that exist in the system already in hopes of all achieving what we want in aviation. And that is a exceptionally safe aerospace system where we care for personnel and, and wellness is at the is at the heart of it. So, um, and we, I hope your listeners will get into the conversation, make your voice heard, because you know we all stand to benefit from progress yes. on this issue. That's that's brilliant. So, if they hear any stuff in the media about this, uh, what what do you think they should replace that sort of nonsense with? Well, you know, the cheap story, the one that the story that always keeps me up at night is the, oh my gosh, pilots are withholding health information mm. and still flying. That's the cheap story. And yeah, I stole that one. So much complicated, so much deeper and more complicated than that. You know, this is a population of exceptionally brilliant, hardworking, professional, highly skilled personnel working in an incredibly complex system that achieves its mission basically every day. Uh, time and time again. And um, us as outsiders, I think, have a responsibility and me as a, you know, us as physicians too, in the spirit of do no harm is how do we, how do we address this barrier that we now know exists in, uh, in, in, in caring for this population, one that we all need to trust? I love that. That's a great mic drop. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, well, with all the, with all the stuff in the media, you know, it's been our, priv we're so grateful to people like you for taking an interest in this topic because yeah, the, the story is complicated. It doesn't make for a good 30 second news piece. It does take some time to explain, um, but hopefully progress will be made forward. So, and I appreciate your time and, and. Oh, no, thank you. I don't know. And uh, it was my colleague, John Bond, that uh, said, we got to get this guy on. He's going to be a great guest and he's absolutely right. So it's been fascinating that, and actually, although it's it's it will probably create some thoughts, maybe some unease in people's heads. I think the fact that you're on it, you're aware of it, you're actually just completely moving towards it and saying, let's just make sure we're as, as safe and, and as thoughtful about this as we can be. And I just love that. And in, in an incredibly safe industry already, I, I like to think of people like you, like you out there, just tweaking it, making it safer and safer still. Oh, well, we are but one very, very small voice among many, many, many others who are who are who are trying to make a contribution to to all of us. We all love aviation, so it's it's yes. it's terrific. But um, but very nice. Thanks, thanks again, Paul. Thank and, you, thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you very much. And just yeah, great to meet. You. And I find that really interesting. We got to have a, have a think about that. And uh, obviously, if there's any questions that come up, I might come back to you if that's okay. Just oh, of course, it might might prompt a few in the podcast. But I think that was. Just really, really helpful. So, we'll of course, I don't know if it's helpful. You know, I can send. I've published a couple like editorial type things, like in Scientific American, and I can share that with you. the The, the titles are a little are a little. I mean, they're probably not going to achieve the mission that you want, which is reassurance, because they they, they are meant to be a little provocative. Yeah. But yeah, I could send that. And then, as it relates to the affiliation, because my employer views this as a kind of a sensitive topic. I have to be kind of careful about my affiliation. So I can send it to you. What I've been doing is, um, yeah, the university of North Dakota is the, is the one that they've kind of approved. So if that's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Billy Hoffman. Awesome guest. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Love Fly podcast. I hope you're finding it helpful with your fear of flying. 
Now, if you do need some extra tailored help, you can go to our website, lovefly.co.uk and click on the courses button. You'll find more help there, such as our 30-day program and our on-demand webinar. Thanks again. See you next time.